Hello and welcome to The Syllabus. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, host of this here podcast about politics and higher education. This week on The Syllabus, I'm talking to a neighbor of mine. I mean, you know, he lives 20 miles away because I'm in Southern Connecticut and he's in Middletown. His name is Michael Roth. He's the president of Wesleyan University. He's been there about 17 years now, which is amazing because college presidents never make it that long anymore. Either they get thrown out by their boards of directors or they get driven out by the stress of the job or they vanish mysteriously and they're just never to be heard from again. As you'll discover from listening to the podcast, he's well-liked enough that he is quite well compensated, but that's typical of private university presidents these days. He has a lot of opinions and he sometimes tweets them out, which I wouldn't do because I would get myself in trouble, but he does it and uh, it gives us fodder for some things to talk about. It's a really fun conversation. He is a candid dude and I'm really grateful. Please have a listen to me talking with Wesleyan University President Michael Roth. Michael Roth, president of Wesleyan University, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. So aside from being president of Wesleyan, who are you? What's your story? Besides being president of Wesleyan, I am a historian I'm from Brooklyn, New York, originally, although grew up on Long Island. And what else can I tell you? I went to Wesleyan as, a, as an undergraduate in the 70s. And it was quite an adventure for me. My parents hadn't gone to college and the college experience was all new for me. And it was a great experience. And somehow I found myself wanting to be a professor. And my teachers at Wesleyan, who actually did like me, told me I would never get a job. And so I shouldn't expect to become a professor in 1978 as when I was graduating. And I wound up going to graduate school at Princeton, worked with the wonderful Carl Shorsky there in the history department and Dick Rorty and philosophy and Sheldon Wolin in political theory. Got a job in California where I taught in the Claremont Colleges at Scripps College for about 12 years and then ran a think tank for the Getty for about five years and somehow was asked to be president of an art school in the Bay Area, the California College of the Arts. And one day Wesleyan called and said, would you be interested in, in uh, being uh, considered for the presidency? And I thought there's no danger that they would ask me to be president. So I, I went back for some discussions and that was in 2006. And I've been president since 2007. You've been at it 17 years. That's long for these days. So aside from the money, because I know the money's very good being a college yes. president. It's no, really. You make, do you make a million dollars? I do. Yeah, it's really good. Aside from the money, why would anyone want to do this? I always think this is a job that takes you out of the classroom. It takes you away from your research. It takes you away from the stuff that you got into it for. Plus, everyone on principle is mad at you all the time. Plus, donors try to bully you. Why did you want to do this? That's a great question. When I started, I, I, that was the question I asked myself. I had a call from a search firm asking me if I'd be interested in the presidency of California College of Arts and Crafts, it was called then. And I thought it was hysterical because I was always the guy in the faculty who the presidents hated and the feeling was mutual. And I said, you have the wrong Michael Roth. There are a lot of Michael Roths in academia. And um, she said, no, you were my Western Civ teacher at Scripps. I know who you are. You'd be the out of the box candidate. To my surprise, they asked me to be president. And I called an old friend of mine, Elizabeth Minnick, who's a philosopher, a public philosopher in uh, North Carolina. And I said, I, I shouldn't do this, right? 
just for the reasons you said, I love to teach. I love uh, research. And she said, listen, you've written some books. Why don't you try building a bookcase? And I thought that was an interesting way of thinking about it. And I've been very lucky at Wesleyan and even and at CCA, where I also taught, you can do it both. So let's talk a little about your 17-year presidency. And I want to talk about your books later. You got a lot of attention for ending legacy preferences a couple years back. You were quite candid in writing about it. That wasn't such a big deal at Wesleyan, where there had never been so much attention to legacy preferences anyway, or so you said. That's all well and good, but you didn't end preference for athletic recruits. And in my experience, when I was a freshman advisor at a large university that had a strong athletic program, the biggest allowances for bad students were made when they were good athletes. In other words, the athletes were below par on SAT and grades, much more so than the legacies or people who were seen as affirmative action candidates. It was really a freshman rower or softball player was somebody you might see really mediocre SATs from. I'm assuming Wesleyan still gives preferences to athletes. And I'm curious why. I don't think it's, it's, we don't give preference for the children of athletes. That would be the analogy with legacy admissions. And I, I doubt your eyeballing of your advisees is really a good way of thinking about this. Selection prejudice is pretty strong. And although there are great statistics to back up at many schools what you've said. I was going to say, you could tell me if the average SATs of athletes at Wesleyan are lower than the average SATs of non-athletes. Uh, I, I can't because we don't actually require SATs. Um, okay, you could find a statistic that would satisfy the question I'm asking. Yeah. If I wanted to show that athletes in general do worse than uh, non-athletes academically, yeah, I could I could show in general. But in the NESCAC, we have a system whereby every student who's admitted who's an athletic recruit, there are non-athletes at the school who also have this, those same credentials. In other words, they have to be representative. Uh, what is that? Okay. What does that mean? So my wife went to Williams. Let's pick that as a NESCAC example or Wesleyan. What does that mean that they have to be representative? The athletes academically have to be very much like the students who are non-athletes academically. In other words, not everyone is in the top 10%. Even at Williams, where everyone thinks they're in the top 10%, if you admit a rower, that's usually very good students, actually, you admit a rower uh, with a certain academic profile, you have to have other people on campus who are not rowing or playing baseball or whatever, who have the, that. But that's a pretty low bar. That means there has to be somebody on the campus who's as media. Well, not just student. somebody. They have to be representative. <laughs> they have to be representative. In other words, they can't be outliers. And but why is it important to have really good sports teams such that you make what I believe are pretty substantial academic concessions to get the athletes for those teams? Why not just we, say we everyone's a walk-on? We don't make very significant academic concessions to get athletes for those teams. And I think that there are athletic achievement is one of the things that helps students in, in many cases achieve in other areas. Almost none of our students, almost 0% of our students will become professional athletes, but the athletes will go on to do other things outside of the realm of athletics for which athletics prepares them, just like almost none of our students will become classics professors. But they do take classics classes and that helps them for a career on Wall Street. Um, but it, these things sometimes translate into other areas. And so I think, would it be, would the school be stronger academically if there were no 
athletes or no musicians, let's say. I don't know. I, I, I think the schools would be, they'd certainly be different. I think the prejudice against athletes by intellectuals is longstanding and it's well-founded. We get pushed around by strong people all the time. But I find in my classes, the athletes perform at least as well as the non-athletes. Really? Really. They're, they are as good students as the non-athletes, you're saying? The ones that I can, they were talking about just eyeballing it. Yeah. Okay. Look, I don't, want to, I don't want to belabor this. I think it's and already I, have. not. <laughs> I have because I think you're being dishonest a little bit. I think football players at your school are pro- probably have substantially worse academic profiles than non-football players because every school I've ever taught at where I've had any knowledge of that's been true. And I guess I was asking for, and that's not, and it's truer than it is of say French horn players or acapella singers but or not actors or debaters. Road. You're picking on the sport I did? Is that, <laughs> that's true. That, no. That, no, no, that's I mean, absolutely true. It's not sports. as, you're right. It's not as true of cross country runners. And in my experience, it wasn't as true of say swimmers. Exactly. Um, but it was true of football players and, and ice hockey players and schools kept doing it anyway and pretending like it wasn't true. And I was just asking for a defense of why you keep doing it in the sports where it's true. We set a, um, a framework for admitting uh, students that, that requires that they can do the work at an appropriate level, whether they play football or hockey. And it is true that some sports have attracted people who will not perform academically, but they'll perform well in that sport. And we try not to have them attend wrestling. You told the Washington Post recently, it was, this was on their TikTok channel, they were interviewing you. And the Washington Post, by the way, for those who don't know, has a stronger TikTok game than most other major newspapers. I didn't even know I was on their TikTok channel. Yeah, that's what you were on. Or you were probably on something else and they sliced and diced it for TikTok. Ah. You were talking about, I think, chat GPT, but other artificial intelligence modes. And you said that they could be useful. And you said, what I tell the students is if you use the new technology, then cite it. Yeah. Uh, What do you mean by that? How should they be interacting (laughs) with chat GPT in a way that's ethical? And, and okay by you, so long as they cite. Yeah, I think as long as they, get, just like they can quote anything else, right? As long as they, as long as they, what, what, if they use duplicative language, they should indicate from, from whence it's been duplicated, <laughs> to use the most recent example at Harvard. I want them to disclose the tools they use for the work they do, whether it's a book from the library or an internet source. The problem with artificial intelligence, especially open AI, is that it we don't know where it got its sources. And that is it's certainly a dilemma. But what I tell my students is that I don't tell them they can't use it because I don't think it would work, actually. Would I prefer they don't use it at all? I guess so. But to me, I use a calculator when I do grades. I don't use a pencil only. So... I think they're going, to, they're going to use this technology. I want them to disclose how they use it. And I also a- appeal to their desire to actually think for themselves, which I hope they have, and that if they outsource their thinking to artificial intelligence, it seems to me that they're wasting their education. Here's the thing. You can go into ChatGPT and say, write me a 2,000-word essay on the Phaedrus, and it will. And you can give it a, a, a question. And it will send back a 2,000-word essay. I assume that it's not okay to just put that in quotes and cite it, chat yeah, GPT, would, yeah. and hand that in. 
Other things it will do are recommend 20 books that mention the Phaedrus that have been reviewed in the New York Review of Books in the past 40 years. And so give you a starting list for a bibliography. I'm not, I guess I'm unclear what kind of thing it would do that you would be okay with students using it for, because so much of what they, we all want to use it for is to generate language for us. I think if it's generating language that they were going to use, you should put it in quotation marks and give the appropriate, an appropriate citation, but I'll give you, give the features example. If I asked the chat GPT to say, what is Plato's theory of memory in the Phaedrus, and how does it compare to other dialogues? It may give me a starting point for thinking about that question. If it gives me a final product, I'm not interested in that as, as a piece of student work. I guess if they put it in quotations and say, this all comes from chat PPT, I'd still give them an F, but they wouldn't get charged with plagiarism. I want to know what they think and not just what um, the machine thinks. And I want, in the best of worlds, I want them to want to think. And if ChatGPT gives them a list of books discussing the features that have been reviewed in the New York Review of Books, and that's a start for them to do some reading and thinking, that's great. If it does their thinking for them, then I failed as a teacher because I haven't motivated them to actually want to come to terms with the features. It might be there was nothing you could do in the current climate to motivate them to- Yeah, uh, I may may be doomed to fail, but I still fail. So my, (laughs) my theory is that in the humanities, the only place we can go is oral exams, that there's going to be so much plagiarism and so many ways around our best attempts to stop the plagiarism that if we really want to know what a student thought about the French Revolution or the Phaedrus or the Great Gatsby, we're going to have to block off a half an hour with that student at the end of the term and have a conversation with them. I don't disagree. I think if my classes were a little smaller, I would definitely do that. But I suspect a student has inappropriately used other sources. I, I do something along those lines. I ask them to come in and talk to me about their essay. And Usually in in two minutes, whether they actually have thought this themselves or whether they've read their own essay, if they've right, if they pasted something (laughs) in. Uh, But I, I, so I'm very much in sympathy with that. My worry about that is there are some people who write better than they talk, and they think through writing more powerfully than they think through talking, and. So I'd want to just make sure I didn't miss out on someone's intelligence by not giving them that opportunity. There's no question but that the oral exam mode will disadvantage students who are not great talkers or who think slowly on their feet or talk haltingly and privilege glib bullshit artists like me. There's no question. (laughs) There's no question about that. I just fear that it might be where everything's going. Good reason that fear. Uh, I also give my students uh, short answer questions where they're sitting with me in a room taking a test. And if I see that they they don't know anything of these basic short answer questions I've asked them, but their essays sound like Goethe wrote them, <laughs> I realize they, they didn't write that essay. Hey friends, if you're enjoying this conversation with Michael Roth, if you enjoy the syllabus in general, if you're a listener to this podcast, Maybe you'd like to do a good deed and create more listeners to this podcast. 
share it with somebody or go onto your platform and rate it. Give it four or five stars. If they're more than five, you know, give it six, 20. I don't know. Just, you know, be generous. Uh, go on your social media feed, share it with somebody. That's the thing you can do to help spread the love and spread the word. Thanks so much for listening to and supporting the syllabus. You recently tweeted after Claudine Gay resigned from the presidency of Harvard, quote, the people who went after Claudine who wanted the thrill of her disgrace also want to destroy tenure, academic freedom, and that's just the beginning, unquote. So since you've been out there talking about it or tweeting or whatever you do on the platform now known as X about it, I want to ask you for your analysis of why she lost her job, whether she ought to have resigned, and how we should think about it. Yeah, that tweet came in a moment of weakness. I was trying to not say anything about this, since I think I've also said it doesn't really matter that much who the president of Harvard is. And I'm in a very small minority, apparently, because everybody is so interested in that. I think that some of the people who went after Claudine Gay, who I don't know at all personally, they were determined to remove from that esteemed perch a person for whom they had no respect. And some of them said they didn't respect her because of her academic credentials. I'm not sure how much they know about other presidents' academic credentials. Um, Some of them didn't like what she stood for in the world. And the fact that the motivations of some of the people went after her. And so I, what I meant by going after academic freedom and the rest is that what's happening in Florida and the attempt to tell people what to teach and what not to teach, et cetera. However, whatever their motivations, they found cases of plagiarism that have to be taken seriously. I think the Harvard authorities should have made a, a judgment about those cases of plagiarism some of which, the ones I've seen in the press, some of which seemed kind of silly and minor, but clearly wrong. <laughs> and, and, and to make a determination about whether that was just too much silliness and sloppiness for the president of a university to have engaged it. I did not see cases where a key idea was stolen that, on which an argument was built. But that doesn't mean it's not there. I I don't disagree with you, actually. Some of them seemed really trivial, although I don't think any plagiarism is trivial. But on the continuum of cases, I agree that these were by no means as bad as, for example, what Doris Kearns Goodwin did a number of years ago. And she held her position of esteem in the literary firmament, it seems. Didn't Joe Biden withdraw once from running for office because of a plagiarism issue of a speech? Oh, Joe Biden plagiarized the speeches of of British labor leader Neil Kinnock. There's a lot of it out there. You never know what's intentional and what's not. I would say, actually, let's pause on this for a minute. I know that you must have read the passages that she lifted from Jennifer Hochschild's acknowledgments, the sociologist Jennifer Hochschild. That was truly weird because it's one thing if you're quoting statistics or empirical findings from someone else, and you didn't rephrase as much as you should have rephrased, but everyone is kind of mining the same articles for footnotes, and it's wrong, and it's sloppy, and maybe it does compromise you as an academic leader. But who on earth plagiarizes someone else's acknowledgments? The acknowledgments are the easy part to write. They're the end of the book where you thank the people who got you on your way. Yeah, I know. It struck me as a strange pathology that you would steal someone else's thank you. It's like stealing someone else's wedding toast for your best friend. Louis C.K. has this, maybe you've seen this, what do you call it, the kleptoamnesia, something like that. Uh, that what, what happens with comics, he says, is that 
He says, we're not smart enough to actually intentionally steal from each other. But you go to a club and you hear this guy and he sounds really funny and you're laughing your ass off. And then two months later in a writer's room and there's and they say, your joke doesn't work. And you say, how about this one? And you come up with this joke, which you right. like because you liked it. You know, you, I, and, and they happen that way. I don't know if that's how it happens. I write very a lot, probably too much, actually. You should think more and write less. But I write a lot. And I'm often wondering, I like this sentence. And I'm thinking, do I like this sentence because I've read it? And I'll, I run things through turnitin.com well, all the time. My wife can tell you I steal her stories. Yeah, okay. She'll tell, I'll tell a story of something that happened to me and she'll say, that didn't happen to you, that happened to me. <laughs> yeah. And I truly believe it happened to me. And in high school, I remember a friend of mine being peeved that I had stolen a, a joke of his in class. He had made the joke quietly, sotto voce under his voice a few meetings ago. It was econ, it was AP econ. And then when whatever, some topic of Keynesianism or something else or microeconomics came up a few days later, I made some other, I made the same snarky comment thinking it was mine. It does happen. There's no question that it happened. It happened with her several dozen times. Let me put it to you this way. If an underling of yours at Wesleyan had a similar profile, what would you do? If they were caught in that kind of plagiarism that many times. If one of my colleagues, let's say, who was a dean, had a dozen instances of sloppy plagiarism, I would ask, I would ask them to resign. So that seems to make sense. And I believe you. I take you at your word. I'm surprised at the tweet you sent out. I thought, well, it's a logical fallacy. It's the genetic fallacy to say there's a problem with their argument because of who made it, right? It's not really important who brought the plagiarism to light. What's important is the plagiarism. I agree that Chris, Christopher Rufo doesn't have the best interests of higher learning at heart. I think some of the people who were pushing this agenda are not characters I want to do business with. That said, one could also say thank you for bringing our attention to a serious ethical lapse. I wrote the people who went after Claudine wanted the thrill of her disgrace, also wanted to destroy tenure, academic free freedom, and that's just the beginning. I believe that's true. It may also be true that she should have resigned given the facts of the matter, but I don't think they give a damn about plagiarism in some of the cases. I, I think they will go after academic freedom. They, will, they want to get rid of tenure. Not, not everybody who thinks she should have resigned given the facts, I'm one of them, but the people who went after her, it's like Stefanik. You, is she a friend of the Jews? Give me a fucking break. Just because she doesn't like anti-Semites doesn't mean I want to take her to shul. I, I, <laughs> a I genetic fallacy is works only in a narrow... Yes, it would be a genetic fallacy if I said she didn't commit this because they're bad people. They, she committed it and they're bad people. Watch out for them because they won't let you do your podcast. I guess my reaction... I agree with you. I think it's all true. She should have resigned and they're bad people. I guess it felt a little bit clubby to me. Look at this Northeastern College president belittling the people who said something true about my friend, the other Northeastern elite college president. Oh, come on. Rufo announced to people that he, he was doing this in order to take down the left-wing elite that was governing colleges and universities. It's like saying there are anti-Semites at Harvard. So the, with, we're going to be grateful for these billionaire bozos. Sure. But let me just ask, I'll end on this and then we can move on. It gives the, it strikes me that it gives them ammunition to say, look at these out of touch, elitist, pointy headed liberals when the pointy headed liberals don't admit what's true on the face of it, which is plagiarism is really bad and that the Harvard president 
committed this many instances of it is really concerning. And somebody else should have caught it so that it wasn't left to you guys to catch it. You may be right that if we bend over and tell Chris uh, Rufo to hit us in the ass, that he won't really hit us that hard next time because we're being so nice and bend over for him. But I actually don't think that's true. I think you're wrong. I think calling out their motivation when their agenda is to make places like Harvard and Wesleyan and Yale a more homogeneous, more white supremacist, less friendly to uh, free scholarship. I think it's more important to call out their agenda than it is to worry about whether I look like I'm closing up to the elite establishment, of no, which I'm strictly I, a part. I, I wasn't suggesting that anyone ask for a lighter slap from Chris Rufo rather than a heavier one. That wasn't quite what I was saying. I don't know. But I think you're saying we don't want to seem like we're in the club of the liberal elite. So let's show. I'm saying maybe, I guess I was saying maybe the job is not to be pro one agenda or another, but in favor of truth. So no, if people well. say true things, you say thanks. And if they lie or they're tendentious, which someone like Chris Rufo sometimes is, then you call that out as well. I guess it doesn't seem to me there are teams in this, right? We all want learning to take place in good places with good teachers, right? For sure. That we agree on. I guess I'll just, since you brought the term up, do you think this is a white supremacist movement, this anti-DEI movement of Bill Ackman, Chris Rufo, et cetera? Is that the right term for it? I, I think that they are less worried about white supremacist ideology than they are about uh, preserving uh, the privileges to go with their version of meritocracy, which is that rich people get to have their children with a certain range of advantages that should not be compromised by efforts for diversity and inclusion. I mean, you say you don't have to choose sides, and sometimes you don't, but sometimes you do, actually. And so if you're going to um, be involved in the political sphere in the next year, you may spend a lot of time making fun of Joe Biden and think, I'm not actually supporting Donald Trump. I'm not choosing sides, but you are. And you're a phony intellectual if you do that, thinking that you're going to escape the worst features of populist authoritarianism, which usually is aligned with white supremacy. Sometimes good for some Jews, usually not so good. You wrote a book about the student and the history of the student. What's the job of the student now and how has that changed? So the book covers a long period of time. I know, uh, a few thousand years. Yeah, so it, it's changed a lot. I guess the major change that interests me is the, the change from being a student is learning how to have some economic independence to a broader notion of learning how to be free that develops in the, I argue, in the 18th century at the Enlightenment, that being a student is becomes practicing freedom or learning how to practice freedom. And these days, that, that tension between economic independence and a broader freedom is everywhere apparent as students at all kinds of schools worry about not just that they'll get a job, but that whether they'll have access to the, the 1% or the 1.5 and practice the, the skills that will, they think will allow them to have economic advantages. Uh, but more broadly, I think being a student today should mean learning how to think for yourself in the company of others and that colleges and universities are still great places for people to 
entertain different kinds of ideas in a variety of contexts with different kinds of tools in order to become more independent thinkers who can also be bound up with or beholden to other people. When I last taught college, which was two years ago, the biggest problem at the campus where I taught seemed to me phone addiction and the general culture of the internet and the way it intruded on students' lives and made it hard for them to have good social lives and good academic experiences. When you look at Wesleyan University, what is the biggest problem facing the school doing its job? I think economic pressure, perceived economic pressure, weighs very heavily on our students and helps them or pushes them towards choices of study that are perceived to be uh, in their yeah. economic interest, but may not be. Put another way, the stuff you and I study, the humanities, is really having a hard time because they don't see any return on investment in it. I was trying to be a little more cautious about it because I think Western, we have had some decline in the humanities and arts, but it's less, less than a 10% decline off a pretty high number. So here's my question. I don't understand why this has happened, because when I got out of college in 1996, the there were fewer high paying jobs for people coming out of elite colleges. Right. There's definitely been a polarization and a barbell type situation where it, there's the middle class has shrunk. But if you're coming out of Wesleyan or Princeton or Stanford or Yale, it's never been rosier. And if ever there's a group, a cohort of kids who could say, I'm not going to worry about the career, I'm going to go backpack around Europe for two years, then I'm going to maybe work my way into something and then eventually I'll find my path and I'm going to find myself for a while. It should be right now because the value of a Wesleyan education is so high. They're not going to be unemployed. And yet they are more convinced than ever that they're unemployable. Why has this happened? Why has the romance of taking time and finding yourself and kicking about for a bit been exchanged for this extraordinary career careerism in defiance of the actual reality of the job market for elite college grads? It's a great question. I wish I had a better answer. Part of it is, as you, where you started, the erosion of the middle class in the sense that if I don't do really well, I'm going to be really badly off. When I was leaving college 20 years before you, and I got a, a fellowship at Princeton, but I also had gotten a job <laughs> in, at the Yale Psychiatric Hospital, actually, in those days. And I thought, I better take the job. And because my teacher said, there are no academic jobs. And my father, who was a furrier, like his father, he said to me, if you don't try this thing, you'll always wonder whether it would have worked. So you should try it. And if it doesn't work, you'll, I had a job as a dishwasher. I, he goes, you'll always make money. You'll find a way to make some money. My uncle drove a cab in New York. He said, he can help you out. And that was the attitude. I see that you're greeting me here today. You're wearing a sort of a nice, dark uh, polo shirt of some sort. And here you are, university president. You don't even greet me with a tie on. Do you care at all how anyone dresses? Student, no. teacher, or administrator? Is there any value? See, I used to wear a tie to teach. I Four days a week, I didn't dress. And then on my teaching days, I dressed. That was my choice. There were plenty of highly effective teachers who dressed better and some who dressed worse. Do you have any thoughts on the sartorial culture of a campus? I do. I do because I live on campus and I teach twice a week and my students are invariably in something like sweatpants and sweatshirts, right? And then I'll, sometimes I'll see them at a play on the weekend or if I'm coming home late into the driving in, I'll see students going out and they're dressed at the nines. And I realize that they do make sartorial choices. <laughs> Just not for you. Not for class. And 
And I was, when I first started here, some alum wrote in, would it kill you to wear a tie? Because the picture on the website. And I have a closet full of ties, but I, having worked in an art school, I've learned not to wear them. It's funny. I had a realization recently that I don't have to wear a tie almost ever, except I believe you wear them to funerals because you never know. That's true. I do. I, that's true. And, and, I, and weddings. I don't like the open necked collar wedding thing. It seems to me to show a certain lack of respect. But basically, I don't ever have to wear ever have to dress. And my dad, who was a small town lawyer in Springfield, Massachusetts, put on a tie and a blazer every day. And he was casual because he didn't wear a two piece suit. He just went charcoal pants, blue blazer. And I realized I'm not I'm never going to be my dad. I've just kind of transcended it by choice of career and the changing culture of the country. And a little sad. I know Flaubert uh, said that every time he looked in the mirror in the morning and to, to shave, he thought, what a what an idiot bourgeois joker I am yeah. because I have, <laughs> why am I shaving? And I thought I'd be really liberated if I could just, why do I shave? For, I do. I know. And I don't wear jeans to class. Typically, I wouldn't wear shorts because I'm an old man. I think it's inappropriate, but. All right. There we go. But, there you go. All right. Michael Roth, president of Wesleyan, man in pants. <laughs> Thank you for being my guest. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Mark. I'm Mark Oppenheimer. And if you have any comments, critiques, complaints, or feelings about this episode, send them to me, mark.oppenheimer at aju.edu. The AJU is for American Jewish University, which is the university that produces this podcast in concert with InsideHigherEd.com. If you want to learn more about the open programming at American Jewish University, including free classes, go to aju.edu slash open. We are grateful for the production help of Doug Letterman at Inside Higher Ed and for the team at American Jewish University. That includes Sherry Hirely, Tessa Grasso, Amelia Hamill, editor Jacob Kaufman, and Alyssa Silva. As ever, I'm Mark Oppenheimer, and make sure you go subscribe to The Syllabus.